Welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. I'm Braxton Hunter, and this is Trinity Radio. And today we're doing something a little bit different. I have a uh, an hour and a half, I think it's about an hour and a half, of a course that we no longer offer at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary, at least not in this format. And so um, I've been allowed to make it available. So I've made all six parts of this course available to our patrons at patreon.com slash trinityradio. But... This uh, section of the course, this is lecture five from the course, is available for everyone. I just wanted to make it available for you. And I think it's got some of the best stuff in it. It's got, a, it's got Augustine, it's got Aquinas. What more do you want? So this is the history of apologetics from the third to 13th century. And we'll interlace with that uh, how we use some of these ideas in modern Christian apologetics. I think oftentimes skeptics think that these are things that we've come up with and have been debunked and blah, 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 and it's all modern. But these are ideas, some of the ideas that we use in Christian apologetics today uh, reach deep back into the history of the Christian faith. Likewise, the some of the best arguments, in my opinion, the best argument that atheists have uh, predates Christianity. So so there's not, there's not much new. What we have is new formulations of these ideas. But listen, I hope you enjoy this, and as an added bonus, you get to see me with hair. Uh, so get ready for that. But if you would like to have access to all six lectures and 28 other lectures in the history, uh, in, um, in, in uh, the field of apologetics from the seminary level, you can get those by becoming our patron at any level at patreon.com slash trinityradio. I hope you'll consider that, and I hope you enjoy this content now. All right, let's... Um... Let's go ahead and continue by looking at Eusebius. <clears throat> His two-part work, The Preparation of the Gospel and the Proof of the Gospel, is a massive collection. And um, he wrote another work, Theophany, which is a much shorter work that gains the most important arguments from the former two. So he, he compiled this together. His greatest contribution is not in producing new concepts, but in compiling the best of the Greek fathers. So he <clears throat> he is one of these guys, and you have someone like this usually in uh, in every era who takes the best of what has gone before and um, gives you not really anything new but a synthesis of it all or just a collection, and then that preserves it somewhat going forward. But he wrote against polytheism, and this gives us an opportunity to talk a little bit about polytheism and what the major problems with it are. Um, so let me say some things about why polytheism <clears throat> is false, and then we'll talk a little bit about uh, how this relates to apologetics today. Polytheism, in the truest sense of the term, cannot be. Uh, po polytheism, <clears throat> as many have understood it, is more philosophically sound. So like when we talked about how some of these guys thought of one creator God, one all-powerful God, and then a couple, and then a number of lesser quote-unquote gods, uh, sometimes that looks not a whole lot different than like, you know, God and then other supernatural beings like angels or demons. But if, if it's truly theism, where you have more than one supreme being, this is philosophically impossible. And the reason it's philosophically impossible is because it the idea of two supreme beings cannot be because a supreme being is maximally great. He's as great as he can be. 
You can't have more than one like that because if, if they're different, if you have two, say you have two maximally great beings and they're and they're different in some way, then that means by virtue of their being different, that one of them has something that the other does not have. Uh, which would then mean that one is the supreme being and the other is not, i.e. one all-powerful God. If they don't have any differences, then they're the same being. <clears throat> right? So polytheism has been philosophically rejected, um, and believe it or not, I'm, I'm very confident in saying this, today Mormonism, is the most polytheistic religion in the world, in the true sense of the term, because um, on Mormonism, those of you that have my cults class, we go into a great deal of detail about their views, but on Mormonism, there's not just one Father God, there's one before that, and there's one before that, and there's one before that, and it's not like there's a whole lot of them. They say there is no first God, it's infinite into the past. So you have an infinite number of maximally great beings, as great as they can be, and you can become one because one of their uh, cliche phrases is, as he is, talking about God, as he is, we may be. As we are, he once was. So you can, um, you can actually um, uh, see that, that Mormonism is the most polytheistic religion in the world because they have a literally infinite number of gods that are all maximally great. This is philosophically not possible, and thus Mormonism is philosophically impossible. And that's very important. Now, here's what I want to say about this. Oftentimes today you'll have atheists who will say, um, <clears throat> with all of these religions, how could we ever know which one is true? Well, that's not really that difficult. If you cull away all of the polytheistic religions, so that all you're left with is monotheistic religions, and then you take the three most influential monotheistic religions in the world, Islam, Christianity, and probably Judaism, <clears throat> if for no other reason the way it informs the other two, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, Every, all three of those point to the God of Abraham as the one true God. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is, is that Christians, Jews, and Muslims all with the same God. That's not what I'm saying. Because, as I said earlier in the class today, Islam describes the nature of God so drastically different that it's not God. For one thing, they're Unitarian. They don't believe in the Trinity, <clears throat> which alone makes it heretical on top of everything else. But um, the point that I want to make is, of, if you've got these three monotheistic religions are really what's on the table for you to choose from, then uh, then they all point to the God of Abraham. So all you've got to do is figure out the right perspective on the God of Abraham. It's, it's really, I'm making it sound more simple than it is, obviously, uh, and I'm a Christian, so I'm biased, but let's be honest, it's not much more difficult than that. And that's why it's a little bit important to understand things like this whenever you deal with atheists. I often say this in classes, and it looks like I just got a blog article that kind of makes this same point from one of you, but <clears throat> um, when, you, when, when you come into a class like this, as I've said, at Trinity we want things to be practical. We want you to understand the practical uh, things that will help you in ministry, practically speaking. But it's kind of like your medical doctor going off to school and learning a bunch of stuff that you'll never hear about. 
but he learns all of that so that when he sits in the office with you and diagnoses your situation and says some very practical and simple things to you, well, then uh, he can do that successfully because of all the difficult stuff he learned. And I think that's somewhat like what we do in seminary. So you have to come here, these things like this, take a class like this, and then <clears throat> so that when you go into practical ministry, no matter where the conversation goes, you have some measure of knowledge uh, in responding. Okay. All right, let's move on to John Chrysostom. His works for our, that are of importance for us. Demonstration to the Jews and Greeks that Christ is God. You'll notice that a lot of, as I said before, a lot of apologists have a difficult time coming up with very original titles. Um, there's not much creativity here. Demonstration to the Jews and Greeks that Christ is God. You know, um, it is what it is. Norman Geisler, modern apologist, has Christian apologetics. Douglas Grugethus has Christian apologetics. Michael Icona has the resurrection of Jesus. So, <laughs> you know, it, it's um, it, it tells you something about the um, <clears throat> the kind of people that they're selling these. And, you know, the the way we think about things. I'm looking for the resurrection of Jesus. Well, there's the resurrection of Jesus right there. That's what I wanted. Uh, Jesus accomplished the impossible by changing the world through preaching local ignorant people. This is one of his points about how what Jesus did, the impact that he had, kind of makes it, it kind of serves as an evidence of who Jesus was. Just the impact that he had. <clears throat> um, I wrote this in my book, Death is a Doorway, several years ago in 2009. Having never traveled far from his birthplace, talking about Jesus, written a single document, so far as we know, run for political office, taken a wife, fathered any heirs, or often spoken up for himself in the face of injustice. Jesus of Nazareth is the most influential human being who has ever been born. That's that's without question. I mean, <clears throat> even if even if you're an atheist, there's just no question about the influence Jesus ha has had. This alone should be enough to leave observers inquiring as to what the life and teaching of the historical Jesus actually was, whether Christian, Muslim, Jewish, Hindu, atheist, or agnostic, men of every persuasion and cultural origin have attempted to fully explore the story of the man and determine why his influence was so far spread. It is also the case that even the most venomous and hate-filled opponents of Christ's church find it difficult to speak ill of the man himself, even though he warned the world of the reality of hell introduced a view of morality in which even the thoughts of man can be evil and preached that he alone was the way to obtain everlasting life. People who live contrary to his teaching are wary of doing anything throughout history in an attempt to accommodate their own shortcomings, have twisted the words of Jesus to sound as though he was more permissive of unrighteousness than he was. But they still find it offensive to disregard him outright. What was so, I'm asking, what was so amazing about this Christ that we find him in a uh, we find in him a nature that is absolutely objectionable. Now, having spoken in churches around the world, I've often delivered far less offensive messages than Jesus, and yet been labeled a hellfire and brimstone preacher. Which I, I mean, that's what I am. I mean, that that's true. <clears throat> but individuals have called me this who seem entirely ignorant of his difficult teachings on this matter. 
On occasion, I've been told Jesus just wouldn't have talked about hell, or Jesus wouldn't have said Christianity was the only way to heaven. Such statements not only demonstrate a lack of biblical knowledge, but they also show that many hearers are fully prepared to shoot the messenger while defending its sender. All right? But um, Jesus' messages were, were, were difficult. But his life is such that it... it I think that Chris Austin is on to something here. I, I really think he's got something. And, and I said this before I even knew about what he thought about this. But it's true, isn't it? I mean, the, the life that Jesus lived, he never wrote anything down, never traveled very far, preached to people that by you know standards today might be considered ignorant fishermen and things like that, and nevertheless has had the influence that he's had. That's incredible. It's incredible. <clears throat> Jesus fulfilled the Messianic prophecies. He's another one who does that. Um, now we've come to Augustine. Now, I know that some people call him Augustine. Pronounce it however you want. I don't really care. I call him Augustine because for much of my life, I lived in Jacksonville, Florida, very near St. Augustine, Florida. And so I call him Augustine. I could be wrong, but he's not here, so we can't directly ask him. Um, he wrote an answer to skeptics, divine providence, and the problem of evil on the Catholic and Manichaean ways of life, of true religion, on the usefulness of belief, on free will, replied to the letter of uh, Manichaeus called Fundamental, Confessions, and the City of God. The last two of these are the ones that I most want us to focus on here. Now, before I say anything else, much about him. I'll just give you some very straightforward information. He placed great emphasis on miracles, understood that he did talk about faith and reason, understood that faith comes often after reason, but the problem is that we need an authority. And, and, the pro and it's difficult to judge an authority because if you're trying to judge an authority, you're putting yourself over and above the authority to move on whether he's a good authority or not. He was a philosopher too. There's no question he had a lot of a lot of people like to talk about his understanding of the nature of time um, and God's need to be outside of time and time to be a created thing. And we have found through uh, you know physicists today believe that they understand that time is a created thing. It's difficult to wrap your mind around if you've never thought much about the concept before, but it becomes very important in talking about the cosmological argument that time is a part of the created order. And though it's a little bit, um, uh, it's a little bit of a um, paradox to say it this way, when the universe was not yet created, which you can't really say because when implies time, but outside of creation, when God had not created, there was no time. Time is created. It's a part of the physical universe. The universe is made up of three things, basically speaking: time, space, and matter. <clears throat> I was, and you can listen to this on my website, where I'm having a debate with a guy named Will the Atheist, and, and he's trying to grapple with this and understand what I'm saying. He said, so this is what I mean when I say God is eternal. To say God is everlasting implies time, and he is everlasting. Um, but without creation, when creation was not, God is eternal. God, time, There was no time. It was a state of timelessness. Will said... Yes, but if there's no time, there can be no change. 
And I said, ah, but that's exactly what Christianity teaches. God is changeless, right? Um, this is a difficult thing. Now, what Augustine had a hard time with was he came to believe that, or he had a hard time figuring out how to deal with the fact that where we are right now, the present time, is real and exists. Guys like William Lane Craig, who are current philosophers of time, will say the past doesn't exist anymore. It did exist. It just doesn't exist now. It's gone. The future does not exist yet, but it will, right? Uh, it just doesn't exist. It's, it's not real anymore. Augustine didn't want to say that. He thought there was, you're, there was something crazy about saying that. So what he said was uh, the past exists still. It's still real, and it exists in your memory of it. The future still exists. It exists in your expectation of it. So he's a philosopher of time that really had a, a clear understanding, and if you go any deeper with that, I'll just point to the fact that you can you can look up the difference between A theory of time and B theory of time, um, and he would have he was getting at A theory of time. That's I know that's going much further, but we do have doctoral students here that may want to look, look into that issue further. A theory of time is very interesting to me. It's an interesting part of philosophy. But I say all this just to point to the fact that Augustine was an accomplished philosopher and understood all of this. Um, <clears throat> I want to tell you a little bit about Augustine's life that comes to us from his confessions. Uh, confessions was to be used as an evangelistic tool as well as being autobiographical and then we'll talk about his more, most important work probably for our purposes, the city of God. You can still get these. The confessions tells us that Augustine was born to a very godly woman in a place called Tagast in uh, modern-day Algeria, I think. And she, she was a Christian woman, <clears throat> and there were several worldviews that were really prominent at the time and around Augustine's life. There was Christianity. There was what is called Manichaeism, which you'll see, you see that mentioned up there in that book title on the Catholic and Manichaean ways of life. There's Manichaeism, we'll talk about that. Then there was skepticism, and then there was you know, Neoplatonism. Manichaeism uh, satisfied Augustine for a while, for a while. Augustine was a thinker from very early on, and his mother was always giving him a hard time. Why aren't you a Christian? Why aren't you getting baptized? Because, <clears throat> as a side note, and some of you may go to churches that are like this, but the view that, one view that was prominent and had little pockets of where it had taken hold was what is called baptismal regeneration. <clears throat> the view that baptism itself is what saves you. And so she was always wanting Augustine, when are you going to get baptized, Augustine? Giving him a hard time about this all the time. When are you going to get baptized? But he didn't find Christianity to be satisfactory intellectually. And the reason was because, um, for one thing, he didn't think it had a good answer to the problem of evil. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about when I say problem of evil, why would a good God, a loving God, allow, if he's all-powerful and he's all-loving, why would he allow evil to exist as it does? You know, um, we have answers in spades. I've mentioned it a little bit already today, but this was a big issue. It's still one of the most, probably the best atheistic argument against Christianity. 
I have a whole class on that here at Trinity if you want to take it. But um, he thought the Manichaeans had a pretty good answer to that. And without going too much into Manichaeism, because it'd take us too far, I simply say this. They had this dualism where there was a, a powerful, uh, a good God, and then an evil force. And both of these were supreme beings and impacted life here on Earth. He found that satisfying for a while, and so he became a Manichaean, much to his mother's dismay. Um, at the same time, he was studying to be a, a, a rhetorician, and this took him to a place called Carthage. And when he went to Carthage, he, he describes entering this place, this city, this big city with all of its appeals to the senses and lusts and all these things as, and I'm going to butcher what he said it, but he says something like it was a boiling cauldron of lust and um, temptation. And if you've ever gone to a big city when having not grown up in one, it can strike you that way, particularly during uh, when you're younger. You know, I, um, we grew up outside when I was 10 years old, we moved from Jacksonville, Florida to Nashville, Tennessee, that general area. I moved back to Jacksonville later on when I became a pastor. But during that time, when we first moved to Nashville, we lived in a suburb of Nashville called Hermitage, Tennessee. And when we were there, I remember when I first started driving, I could drive to Nashville. And I went to church in Nashville, and all my friends lived in Nashville. And so I'd go to Nashville, and there was something about it, going to a bigger city and all of the possibilities that were available. All the things that appeal to the senses of a young man. And it is very much like a boiling cauldron of temptation and lust. Augustine experienced this. <clears throat> and um, at some point during his younger life, uh, there are three gardens that are discussed in the Confessions. One is the Garden of Eden. The other is a garden in Tagast. And the other one is the garden outside of Rome where uh, Augustine first experienced what led him to his conversion. Uh, we don't have to talk about the Garden of Eden. The Garden in Tagast, he experienced something that was that stayed with him for the rest of his life. He, he and some stole some pears. And these pears were rotten. They weren't useful for anything. It wasn't that they really taste good or smelled good or anything like that. They just stole them to steal them. These pears weren't good for anything except being fed to the pigs, and uh, yet they stole them. And he found great joy in this, but for the rest of his life he was troubled by it, and what he was troubled by was the fact that the thing that appealed to him since these rotten pears was not the taste, was not the smell, was nothing in the pear itself. Now this is good preaching material coming up, okay? Because it tells you something about man, and you have no doubt experienced this yourself. What he found pleasurable was merely the sin itself, was the act of having stolen the pears. This bothered him and stayed with him for the rest of his life. And um, that's why the, this thing that happened in the garden at Tagast makes that experience very important to him. <clears throat> he went on to, it didn't change him really though at that point, 
he went on to Carthage, and there he found a mistress who is never named. <clears throat> and with this woman, he has a child. And uh, now his mother back home begins going to the preacher and complaining about this all the time, just complaining all the time. What about my son? What have I done wrong? I thought I'd done everything right. I, what's going to happen? The preacher told his mother, don't worry, with a mother like you, surely this man is going to be saved. Well, she took off and went to meet him in Carthage and began living there to constantly give him trouble, you know, to, you know uh, beat him over the head about all of this. And he became uh, this rhetorician that he wanted to for, for uh, the powers that be and was stationed at one point in Milan. And while he was there, encountered this, this priest named Ambrose, bishop, I guess, Ambrose. Ambrose looks at him and says basically, what's, man, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you a Christian? I mean, come on. Get over yourself. Become a Christian. And he says, well, here's the problem. He says, the reason, I mean, the reason I'm not a Christian is because it doesn't make any sense. And so, well, like what? What doesn't make any sense? He said, you guys believe that God has a physical body. Now, Ambrose says, well, what? whatever gave you this impression? He says, well, you know, like in the Garden of Eden, it was, you know, God walking with Adam in the cool of the day, right? Now, this, this, this is an interesting point. You can play with that a couple of ways. Either this is non-literal language, which is what <clears throat> Ambrose told Augustine, or that could be a Christophany. That could be Jesus appearing before the incarnation in the Old Testament. I don't know. I don't, theophany. God appearing. God can do what he wants. The Orthodox Christianity does not hold that God the Father has a physical body. Mormonism has issues with this, but um, but not Christianity. So Ambrose says, whatever, this is crazy. And through this investigation of what Christianity actually says, it opened up some avenues for Augustine to explore this in a little bit more honest way. Now, at some point, Augustine couldn't handle his mother anymore. Monica was her name. And so he decides um, that he's going to leave in the middle of the night. He's going to take off and go to Rome. And so he uh, doesn't tell anybody this. And he lies to his mother about this. He lies to her. In fact, later on he says, I lied to my mother. And what a mother to lie to. You know, she was a godly woman. Uh, I don't want to paint it too bright, her situation, because if you do study this on your own, you'll discover that Monica Monica uh, hit the bottle a little bit. But maybe that's why she was bugging the preacher all the time. I don't know. But <clears throat> he takes off in the middle of the night with his, with his mistress, and they head off and they go to Rome. In the middle of a storm, Monica catch, figures this out and goes after him. And Augustine says go ahead and put into the water and let's go to Rome. And they say, well, there's this storm. This storm is going to wreck us. And he says, I don't care. Send us to Rome. 
Augustine was more interested, he was he was less afraid of the storm that could kill him than he, he was of Monica. <laughs> so he takes they take off. And they go across this uh, over to Rome. <clears throat> they get to Rome. And at some point, finally, he decides that he needs, he's told he needs to get married. He's got to get married. And so he sends his mistress away. It's very sad. Ronald Nash, who is one of my favorite professors of all time, probably my top three professors. And, uh, and hey, for those of you that are Calvinists and think that I'm too hard on Calvinism, uh, just know that Ron Nash was very Calvinistic, strong, strong Calvinist man. He's dead now. Uh, taught at Reformed Theological Seminary and at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. But he tells this story, and he, he says about it that somebody needs to make a movie about this. Why has nobody made a movie about the life of Augustine? Because as as this woman, he says he said, if I could get Steven Spielberg to make a movie of this, and it has everything. I mean, you want to make an R-rated movie. Uh, you got it with Augustine. And he puts this mistress onto this boat, headed toward, I don't know, I think maybe Alexandria or something. And <clears throat> he looks down at his son. And in the movie, he says, you know, you see this boat going away and this woman on it. And you see the hunkered over, slumped over frame of Augustine. Mother will never see her son again, for all we know. Augustine knows deep down that he is in it. I mean, he is really, I mean, his conscience is broken. <laughs> and Nash says, I guarantee you there will not be a dry eye in that theater if that scene goes off, right? So then, um, uh, Augustine loved this boy. The girl he's going to marry, his fiance, has he has to wait a whole year for her to be old enough to marry, because she's only twelve years old. I mean, just think about this. She's only twelve years old. He's got to wait a year for her to be old enough for him to marry her. And um, during this time, he can't even wait, so he shacks up with somebody else. And somewhere around here is where his Conscience can bear no more. It's too much. And he's with his um, uh, he's with his close friend in this garden outside of Rome. They're in this garden. Remember, these gardens are important in, in August in the confession. So here he is. And um, he is sitting here and they're discussing the fact that all of these people who are not nearly as cultured as the two of them are converting and going into the kingdom of God all the time, becoming Christian. What are we doing? We've got far more advantage than them, far more culture, and here we are sitting here like a couple of jerks, worrying about everything, giving into our lust all the time, never satisfied. I mean, this is just, what are we doing? What are we doing? And about that time, a young girl is heard singing over the garden wall. On the other side of the garden wall, there's a little girl, and she's saying a phrase that means take up and read. Take up and read. Take up and read. She's saying it over and over again. And 
he hears this. What does this mean? I've never heard a girl say anything like that. Finally, finally, happens is they say, I think that God wants us to read the Bible. I think we're supposed to read the Bible. So this is what they do. And Ron Nash, Ron Nash says, this is the Baptist hermeneutical process. This, this, is the, this is how Baptist preachers do hermeneutics. I am one, by the way, so if you feel like that's insulting. <clears throat> he opens the Bible. And at random. <laughs> and puts his finger down without looking. With his hand in front of his eyes. And he begins to read. And where he lands is Romans chapter 13, the last two verses. Romans 13, 13. Which says, let us walk with decency as in the daylight, not in carousing and drunkenness. Oh, oh, imagine how Augustine feels reading this. In the sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ to satisfy fleshly desire. What you read when you when you open it right up, that's what Augustine reads. After he hears this, take up and read. Take up and read. So he looks up at Olympias and they look at each other. He says, go on and read the next verse. Go on and read the next verse. So Augustine looks back down again. Chapter 14, verse 1. Accept anyone who is weak in faith, but don't argue about doubtful issues. And Olympias says, that's me. That's me. This is directly for us. And that is what led to Augustine's conversion. Now, <clears throat> I've got a couple of questions about this. Where, where was Monica when this was going on? Because I wonder about this little girl outside the wall. That's saying, take up and read. Take up and read. you got to wonder if it's Monica down there. Take up and read. <laughs> take up and read, you know. But um, this, is an, this is an amazing story. Amazing story. Um, and I only tell it to you because it's important to his work. But now I want to tell you about the city of God, and then we'll move off of Augustine. The city of God was written as an apologetic work. Because, and the name of it is very important to what it is. I mean, that's actually a good title for this book. And um, <clears throat> what's going on is uh, the Roman Empire has fallen to foreign invaders after 800 years of uninterrupted power. And many of the people think that the reason for this is because of the embrace of Christianity. If we had not embraced Christianity but instead had continued to... Um, worship these other gods, this would have ever happened. This is a very common way that people used to think. Something bad happens is clearly because of the gods. Still, that's, that's how some Christians think. Something bad happens in my life, it's clearly because God's mad at me, right? Even those of us who know better sometimes are tempted by that way of thinking. But, um, so Augustine wrote this, which really became more than that. It became a history of the world from beginning to end. The main thrust is that we did not fall because of the embrace of Christianity. All man-made empires fall. The Persian, the Babylonian, 
The Roman Empire was no different. All man-made empires fall. The, the one empire, that a city that will never fall, is the city of God. And you know why? You can't stamp it out. It's everywhere. It's all over the world. It's in every culture. There are Christians everywhere. You can't go to one place like Rome and destroy it and say we've conquered the city. Because it's all over the place. And if you knock it down in one place, it'll come up tenfold somewhere else. And I have said this is my vision for Trinity as a school. That we become the academic city of God. If God wants to bring a revival in our day, he can easily bring it through Trinity students. Now, there are a lot of other schools, some schools that are a lot bigger than us that could say the same thing, but with our school, it's realistic in a way that it's not for other schools. And I'll tell you why. We've got students in 120-plus countries. It's actually strange that I'm looking at the student list right now and see mostly American students. You see, we've got Trinity students in coffee shops, Trinity students in high-rise office buildings, in subdivisions in small towns. We've got them overseas in Africa. We've got them in shanty towns. We've got them in the Philippines. Trinity's students are studying their work in great magisterial libraries in places like London, England, and on the white beaches of Mexico. Trinity is everywhere. It's all over the world. And if God wants to bring a revival, he can easily do it through Trinity. We are the academic city of God. It's my vision for the school. I want God to bring that kind of a revival. <clears throat> all right. Thank you all for your amens and, and all that. See, I, I get talking about Augustine and I get all preachy. And it's not because I agree with everything about it. You know, <laughs> that's not the point. But, uh, but he has been influential. On Christian doctrine. All right, so let's move on and see <clears throat> the Middle Ages, and we we, we got to move. We got to really move. Reasons to defend. Okay, um, in the East, Islam was becoming a serious religious and military force. The apologists of this era needed to respond to Islam. This also is something that is happening again like never before in our time. History has a way of repeating itself, and it's happening now. I just had someone come recently to Trinity and ask for my, uh, the, the local tri-state news came and wanted me to give an opinion about Islam. I will never again do an interview for the news without requesting the entire uh, copy of the video, of the whole interview. They stayed for about 20 or 30 minutes, and we talked about, they wanted, me to, they wanted to know what did I think was the relevant differences between Islam and Christianity, and of course I gave those differences. And um, uh, somewhere in the course of all this, I said thought that Islam was a false religion. And it didn't seem strange to me to say that, because I say that all the time. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> somewhere in all of that, the lady nearly fell out of her chair. She said, you think that Islam is a false religion? I said, well, yes. They believe something completely different about Jesus than what Orthodox Christians believe. Orthodox Christians believe that Jesus died for the sin of the world on the cross, was buried and rose again, and he was God incarnate. Muslims don't believe Jesus was God incarnate, and they don't even believe he went to the cross. 
uh, the Bible says he did not die. They did not crucify him. These are fundamentally different things and understandings. I said, would you like to talk me to talk with you about their understanding of God the Father? And uh, we, we talked for about 20 minutes about all this stuff. And at the very end of the interview, they asked me, don't you think that a religion, or they said, do you think that Christianity could be hijacked and made to things it doesn't say? And I said, well, sure. I said, well, can you describe a time when that's happened? I said, yeah. That every time some Christian bombs an abortion clinic, you know, the Crusades were a good example of this. And I, I went on about this. And I said, sure, uh, any religion can be hijacked by crazy people. But then I quickly followed by saying, but that's not necessarily what has happened with Islam. Well, the only thing from that entire interview that they played on the news that night made me sound like a theological liberal. Because what they played was me saying any religion can be hijacked, as if I think that Islam has just been hijacked and that there's nothing in the religion that would actually lead to uh, the, some of the thinking that goes on. So I'm never doing another interview like that without getting the entire video. Judaism was still there and still... Um, challenging Christianity. And um, then, of course, there was scholars began to develop a rational basis for faith. So this all was going on on several fronts and was very important for understanding these, uh, these apologists, of which there aren't many that we're going to discuss, but the ones that we do are, are, are monumentally important. <coughs> current apologetic work. John Damascene from Damascus. Uh, he wrote The Source of Knowledge on Heresies, Dialogues Between a Saracene and a Christian. Now, the term Saracene there is a term that was used at the time for Muslims. And um, this is, before that, before Islam, it was already a term for Arab people, and before that, for desert-dwelling people. Uh, you could trace it back to the term for the northern Sinai Peninsula, Sarakin or something like that. But that's that's uh, the term that was used a lot for these people. Sometimes they use the terms Islam and things like that, but not very often. So when you see that term, that's what's going on. <clears throat> he argued that man can rationally know God, right? Um, responded to Jews regarding the keeping of the law and the Sabbath and explained Islam is an Aryan heresy since it denies the divinity of Jesus. You know, because because of the fact that Islam denies that Jesus went to the cross, you've got two forms of answers that come from Muslims today. One form that has come before in the past is the idea, and this is crazy, but is the idea that when Judas was betraying Jesus, the men that he was taking to where Jesus was to arrest him, suddenly God supernaturally changed Judas's face to resemble Jesus so that those standing by took him, took Judas, thinking it was Jesus, and crucified him, and everyone looking on thought that was Jesus, but it was Judas. And that this is what God wanted. And then Jesus escaped out of the area. Now, <clears throat> it's completely ad hoc. And because it sounds so crazy, what we have now is uh, guys like a uh, Muslim apologist named Shabir Ali. You can listen to Shabir Ali debating some of our apologists. He's a Muslim apologist. And um, he actually argues like atheists, like some atheists used to. 
that Jesus actually did go to the cross. He just didn't die there. He survived the cross and was resuscitated. This used to be called the apparent death uh, theory <clears throat> uh, or the swoon theory. And so, um, but, of course, like in his debate with Craig, Craig points out, oh, wait a minute, Shabir, the problem here is that um, the, the problem the problem here is the Quran says he did not die, and it also says they did not crucify him. So that removes any possibility of him having even gone to the cross on Islam. Uh, Edward says, not sure Judas was silent before his accusers, right? Judas wouldn't have said, I mean, maybe they, I don't know. What, I mean, what would that have experience even been like? You're the guy's going with Judas. He's right there. Doesn't anybody wonder when this went? And how Jesus just appeared here, you know? And another problem with this that's been mentioned is that this makes God out to be a deceiver. Of course, on Islam, that's not really a problem because on Islam, they have a view that we're going to talk about a little bit later called voluntarism. See, Christians believe that God is good, that he just is good. Uh, Muslims have this view of voluntarism that says whatever God does becomes good. So he can lie to you tomorrow, and that's fine. It's still Whatever he does tomorrow is good because whatever he does becomes good. It's called voluntarism. And it's uh, if that were true, you can never trust God. Right? All right, so... Um, We've talked about this. Let's move on to um, Anselm. Now, here's where it gets really difficult, and I've struggled whether I should go over what is called the ontological argument that Anselm is well known for. His works, the Monologion, or an alternative title, an example of meditation on the logic of faith, contains a response to the Euthyphro dilemma. Now, the Euthyphro dilemma comes up in Plato's writings. Socrates is talking with a priest, and um, Socrates wants to know from the priest, do the gods like, are good things good because the gods like them? Are the good things good because God, the gods like them? Or do the gods like them because they're good? It's like, are they good in themselves, and so the gods see that, and then they like that? Or do they become good because the gods like them. This deals with this voluntarism, because Islam answers this by saying, no, whatever it is becomes good because it likes it. This is something that freshman philosophy professors love to throw at young Christian freshman students and, and, and say, look, it, it is, this, this really hinders, this messes up theology. Because here's why. These are called the two horns of the Euthyphro Dilemma. The two horns of the Euthyphro Dilemma. There's problems either way you go. Because if something is good because God likes it, and God makes it good by virtue of the fact that he likes that thing, then that makes it somewhat subjective and arbitrary, like Islam does with Whatever he likes today is good, you know. The other horn, now this gets deep, okay? I, I hope you guys are with me. The other horn, where it says uh, God likes it because it's already good, puts you in the strange position of then having to say something else was good external to God, 
and God recognizes that goodness apart from himself. So you're messed up either way. You get, it does something to God either way that we don't want, right? On the one hand, you got voluntarism. On the other hand, you've got something good apart from God. So what's the answer? <clears throat> well, the answer is, <clears throat> excuse me, that neither is true. There's actually a third way. The third way is that the good thing is neither good because God likes it or good apart from God, but goodness is simply grounded in God's nature. It's a part of who he is. It springs forth. It's not that he decided it would be good. And it's not that he looked and found what was good. He just is good. And that's the answer that has won the day when it comes to the what is called the Euthyphro dilemma. <clears throat> uh, Anselm thought that faith necessarily precedes reason, but reason can expand on faith. So you can use reason to greater understanding. In his Prosologion, or Faith Seeking Understanding, there should be an in parentheses there, contains his famous ontological argument for God's existence. Now, this art, now this, now, oh, hmm. I don't know if I'm going to give you this argument, okay? Now, look, if you want to hear this argument, if you want to hear an explanation of this argument, here, here's what I'm going to encourage you to do, because this is not a class on the arguments, although I am going to talk a little bit about some of the arguments. Um, here's what you do. You go to braxtonhunter.com in a moment of great humility. I name my website braxtonhunter.com. You go to braxtonhunter.com slash lectures. You go down to the bottom of the page to contemporary apologetics. Go to the, uh, the section where I talk about the ontological argument, and you can listen to it for an hour. Okay? And they'll have to... And go ahead and tell your loved ones that I have to call an ambulance for you to take you off to an asylum because it is very difficult to understand. I actually have in my notes to give you an explanation of it. I just I don't think we're going to do that. But I'll give you a I'll give, okay simple. I'll give you the simplest explanation I can, and it's not going to be in Anselm's terminology. Um, Anselm argued God is that God is some something of which nothing greater can be thought. Right? You you understand that? You can agree with that. God is something of which nothing greater can be thought. Now, modern day terminology, Alvin Plantinga is the modern philosopher who has done the best work on this, and you can get his ontological argument surely by googling. But you can also get it in his book God, Freedom, and Evil. But uh, uh, he doesn't say God is the greatest conceivable being, as, as Anselm said. What he says is God is maximally great. Maximally great. Um, and, <laughs> and it's funny because you instantly know what that terminology means. He is, he is the greatest. He's maximally great. There is a meme online that has caused me to literally laugh out loud that has some contemporary worship guy singing um, the song, How Great Is Our God, you know, How Great Is Our God, you know that song? And I'm not going to sing. I have, I'm having throat problems. Uh, that's my excuse today. But you know the song, How Great Is Our God. And then right below it, it has William Lane Craig and Alvin Plantinga standing there, and it says, maximally. 
And for a philosophy geek like me, it's really funny. The look on their face and everything, you can Google it and find that meme. But how great is our God? Maximally great. That's the answer. Um, but um, you go check that out. I thought about putting it in this presentation, but this presentation looked so scholarly. And again, I've, I've already told you how proud I am with my PowerPoint. And so I, I didn't want to put that in there, but I'm certainly telling you about it. But um, so God is the maximally great being. He's the greatest conceivable being. All right. Now, God may exist in the understanding. What that means is it may be that he just exists in your thinking about it. Like he doesn't really exist. He just exists in your concept like Han Solo exists in my thinking. He doesn't really exist. Right. He's but I, but he, in other words, he may just be a concept in your mind. But three, to exist in reality and in the understanding is greater than to exist in the understanding alone, right? So if it's a question, if he's supposed to be the greatest conceivable being, if that's how we're defining God, follow me. He just exists in your thinking, like he doesn't really exist. You just have a concept of him. Or he might actually exist in reality. Now if the greatest conceivable being well, the greatest conceivable being would exist in reality, right? Not just in your thinking about it. Therefore, God exists. Drop the microphone and walk away, right? That's, that's Anselm. That's his, that's his answer, basically. Now, uh, that sounds ridiculous to some of us at first glance. But wait, because what most, what most philosophy professors will do for, you know, with these freshman students if you've only got half a semester of philosophy, you don't even know as much as you did before you took that half a semester of philosophy. But what 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 most will do, what my professor did, you know that movie God is Not Great? Or God, God is Not Great. Hitchens book. Um, what is it? God, God, uh, God's Not Dead, right? Playing on the Nietzsche, God's Dead. God's Not Dead, that movie that came out, people have criticized that movie and said that's not how real atheist professors are. That's exactly how my professor at Middle Tennessee State University was. The first day of class, he walked in with a big stack of books, all, you know, wrapped up in his arms, all these big, bigger books than these. And he came in and he dropped them on his desk. And then he marched around looking at us like a drill sergeant. And he said, the first thing we're going to talk about is the arguments for God's existence and why they all fail. That's what he said. So God's not dead the way the atheist is portrayed there is real and is accurate. With some, not all, of course. I mean, that's I'm not painting with a broad brush here, but it happened to me. And the first argument he told us about was the ontological argument, and he said this is the best Christians can do. And then he poorly explained it and then said, see there, these arguments don't work. Well, I don't personally think the ontological argument is the best argument, but even so, he explained it wrongly. Right. Um, what to put it in modern terms, what the argument says basically tries to do is to put someone in a position where they either have to they either have to give you some reason there's there can't possibly be a God or admit that God exists. That's the position it puts someone in. To understand it, you have to understand what philosophers mean when they talk about what are called possible worlds. Now it's about to get all crazy. Okay, so just stay with me. Don't worry. Don't worry. Soon we'll be off of this slide about Anselm, 
and you can, you know, feel good again about the world, right? But, but this is, but this is the thing. Philosophers talk about what are called possible worlds. Now, when they say that, what they don't mean are real worlds out there, actual other worlds or universes. That's not what they're talking about. A possible world is a world that doesn't exist, but there's nothing in it that's impossible. So, for example, uh, there are impossible worlds. The typical example of something that is philosophically impossible is think about this the idea of a married bachelor a married bachelor that makes no sense to you because that's not possible right if someone is married by virtue of being married they're not a bachelor and if someone's a bachelor they're not married right so if if we talk about a world that is populated entirely by married bachelors that's not a possible world that is an impossible world are you with me so far? Um, but a possible world would be a world that just doesn't involve any contradictions like that. So a possible world is a world that's populated or by people with only left, only left arms. Nobody has a right arm. That'd be weird, but it's not impossible, right? Or a world where no music was ever written. There's nothing impossible about that. It'd be sad, but it's not impossible, right? Uh, or a world where Winston Churchill never existed. You know, the, these are not worlds that actually, you say, what is the point of all of this? Well, just wait. Now, <clears throat> to put this in modern terminology, the ontological argument, as Alvin Plantinga does, we could say, a maximally great being exists in some possible world. <clears throat> Edward, uh, let, me, let me get through this, and then I'll come back and answer that. A maximally great being would exist in some possible world. That means there is a world of these possible worlds where there's nothing contradictory about saying there, that God exists in that world. Right? There's some possible world where God exists. Now, it's not an actual, it's not a real world. This is a thought experiment. There's some possible world, like basically you're saying there's nothing contradictory in it, that God could exist in the world. Okay, got that. Sure. The atheist says, sure, fine. God exists in some possible world. There's nothing contradictory about the idea of God existing in some possible world. Okay, great, great. Now, a maximally great being is philosophically necessary. Now, I'm using some terminology here. There are necessary things and contingent things. Con contingent things are things whose existence is explained by something else. Necessary things are things that have to exist. They have to exist. Okay, so God is necessary. If God doesn't exist, then that in that possible world where we're saying God exists, if he's maximally great, he exists necessarily as the creator of that world. He doesn't depend on anybody else or anything else for his existence. That's part of what it means to be maximally great. Got it? Okay. Contingent things are things like, you know, a, a particular tree doesn't have to exist. Its existence is explained because somebody put a seed there. Those are contingent things. They're not necessary. They don't have to be. Those are contingent things. You and I are contingent. We didn't have to be. <clears throat> That's why I could say there's a possible world with no Winston Churchill.
because he's not necessary. <laughs> that doesn't sound very complimentary, does it? But he's contingent, all right? God is necessary if he's maximally great in that possible world, which means if God is necessary in some possible world, then that world would not exist without him. And by virtue of that, this now tells us something not just about that possible world, but about possible worlds in general, all possible worlds. Namely, that they have to have God. Because we've already said God exists necessarily in some possible world. But if he exists necessarily in some possible world, then he has to exist necessarily in all possible worlds, because now we've learned something not about God, but about possible worlds. Namely, they're necessitated by a God. Or a God is they're contingent upon a God. But if they're but but if they're contingent upon a God in every possible world, then that includes the actual world. Therefore, God exists in the actual world. Now, now, um, this took me seven years to understand. If you don't understand it, don't worry. <clears throat> Excuse me. You don't have to write on this. And the modern champion of this, Alvin Plantinga, in an interview on Apologetics 315 with Brian Otten, was asked, how would you explain this to an atheist who you were trying to win to Christ sitting on a park bench in a, in a park somewhere? And Alvin Plantinga, whose, whose whole thing is the ontological argument, said, oh, oh, I would never, I would never try to use this argument. So the modern champion of it says, don't, practically don't mess with this. So if you don't understand it, I think it's fine. I think you'll be fine. But this is a history of apologetics class, and I can't go through Anselm without talking about the ontological argument. But basically what it does is it puts the atheist in a position where he's either got to say it's impossible that God exists, i.e. God does not exist in any possible world. There's something contradictory in the idea of God existing, in which case he's got to give you an argument for atheism. Or he's got to admit that God does exist. So well, couldn't he just say, I admit that it's possible that God exists? No. Because if you admit that it's possible that God exists, you are saying God exists in some possible world. That's what it means to say it's possible. And loops you back around in the argument to God exists. So the atheist has either got to say it's God does exist or it's impossible that God exists. That's where it puts you. Now, have I thoroughly confused everyone? If you think you might understand this, type a Y. I forget which famous philosopher it was who was walking across a um, campus somewhere, and he dropped his books on the Wow, I can't believe. I'm really impressed. But he dropped all his books on the ground and said to no one in real argument exists. Sort of. And then he picked up his books and kept walking. <laughs> because it's, it's very difficult. It's a very difficult argument. All right. Mm. Well, yeah, you had to read that, that book. I remember reading your paper. You weren't happy that you had to read that book from Plantinga, but <clears throat> all right, let's let's move on from Anselm. 
have I said everything I want to say about Anselm? I guess. All right, let's let's move on from him to Peter Abelard. Uh, dialogue between a philosopher, a Jew, and a Christian, and Christian theology. Again, not very innovative titles. Christianity is capable of satisfying the intellectual. That's good to hear. Christianity retains uh, moral superiority. And Christianity is at home in philosophy. Well, I agree with all of that. <clears throat> this is what Dulles says in the textbook about Abelard. In his remarkable modern and unpolemical work, A Dialogue Between a Philosopher, a Jew, and a Christian, Abelard discusses at some length the rational grounds for faith. Near the beginning, the philosopher complains that religion lags behind the citizens and fails to progress because believers do not sufficiently question the traditions in which they have been reared. Now, if you don't understand what happens, anytime you see a dialogue in the title of a philosophical book, it could mean that there's a literary device being used there where you have like a philosopher as a voice, a Jew as a voice, and a Christian as a voice in the book. Okay? This is true in Dialogues Concerning Religion by David Hume, for example. Uh, to this comes that while the authority of one's family and com compatriots exerts a legitimate influence on the faith of the young, the faith of adults should be based on rational choice. Later in the dialogue, the philosopher praises Christians because instead of childishly relying on miracles and other visible signs, as do the Jews, they make use of rational arguments. I think we can have both, frankly. I'm not like other apologists who talk like miracles don't happen anymore. I think they still happen all over the place. Um, and, uh, and I think that apologists make a mistake when they act on The best evidence in favor of Christianity, according to the philosopher, consists in its demonstration or its de demonstrated capacity to convert educated men, such as the Greeks of old. The philosopher that explores the fideism, that's blind faith, of some Christian preachers. An attitude that compares unfavorably with Augustine's respect for the role of rational inquiry. If reason were silenced, complains the philosopher, believers would have no way of answering an idolater who held up a piece of wood and demanded that it be adored as God. At the very least, says the philosopher, reason is, indeed, is needed to select what authority one is going to follow. Now, I, I've said this to, to churches before when preaching that we ought to know what we believe and why we believe it. Because... If you just believe just purely based on faith and you cannot do what 1 Peter 3.15 tells you to do, to give an answer to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you, then <clears throat> what happens is that you end up um, having the right faith, thank goodness, but not having any better answer for why you've got it. Outsider who doesn't have the experience, you have no better answer than what the Hindu has, or uh, the Mormon has with the burning in the bosom, or the Muslim has, or anything else, right? You need to be able to give good reasons, as we've talked about already, okay? Um, I could talk a little bit about the doctrine of the Trinity here, because um, he did have something to say about this. The, let me just clarify for you. Some people have challenged Muslims <clears throat> in particular, and atheists today, that there's something contradictory in the Trinity because it says that God is, that we've got one God and three gods. 
If anyone ever says to you that Christianity says there's one God and three gods, that is not an orthodox Christian position. Christianity says there is one God who exists as three persons. That is not a contradiction. A contradiction would be one God who, ex who is three gods, one God and three gods. That's a contradiction. That's contradictory. It's either one or three. Which is it? <clears throat> to say that uh, God is one person and three persons is a contradiction. But to say one God who exists as three persons is not contradictory. There's nothing contradictory about that. They share an essence, but they're three persons making one God. You say, well, what is that like? It's like a triangle. you got to be careful because analogies for the Trinity can slip you into heresy faster than you turned on your webcam. But, <laughs> but I think a, a, a triangle is fine. you got three distinct points that are separate, distinct points, but, they, but, but it's one triangle. Right? There's no problem with that. The proper Orthodox understanding of the Trinity is not contradictory. One God who exists as three persons. Right? <clears throat> no problem. Uh, now, that is a difficult thing to understand, but it also means that Jesus is not praying to himself on the cross when he's praying to the Father. He is praying to another member of the Trinity, another person, but it's the same God. Right? That, that's important to understand. Understanding of the Trinity is a difficult thing for a lot of people. Of course it's difficult. It is difficult. But it's mysterious, but it's not contradictory. All right? Okay. Uh, that's Abelard. <clears throat> Probably considered the greatest apologist to this point is Thomas Aquinas. And some would say the greatest apologist ever. Some would say the greatest Christian thinker ever. He wrote the Summa Contra Gentiles and Summa Theologica. In Summa Contra Gentiles, Aquinas provides a defense of the Christian faith in general, though it was commissioned as a missionary education manual for dealing with Muslims. So he was, he was commissioned to write this thing so that we would have something to give missionaries dealing with Muslims, but he said, I'm going to write whatever I want. So he wrote a lot in there, uh, wrote to everybody, basically, uh, in Summa Contra Gentiles. Uh, but then, in the... Uh, now, you need to understand that Islam began to gain a foot in the thinking world, partly because the Crusades had failed to stomp, stomp it out. Jewish and Christian dialogues were worsened because of political issues during this period. And so Thomas was writing at the height of controversy. Also, the natural science and robust philosophical ideas were more accessible to the world. This made it easy for some to reject the Augustinian understanding of faith as well as the supernatural explanations of the Bible. Summa Contra Gentiles was, uh, then was, was uh, it, you ought to read, you, you really ought to read what Dulles has to say about this. I think it's on page 117 about this. And he actually quotes from Thomas. He said, This is what he says about, about it. He says, Thomas might claim that unbelievers should be converted by a study of the arguments. That is to say, he almost goes so far as to say that the arguments for God alone 
can actually make someone a Christian. But then he cautions himself against this, and he says, For that which is above reason we believe only because God has revealed it. Nevertheless, there are certain likely arguments that should be brought forth in order to make the divine truth known. This should be done for the training and consolation of the faith, and not with the idea of refuting those who are adversaries, for the very inadequacy of the arguments would rather strengthen them in their error, since they would imagine that our acceptance of the truth was based on such weak arguments. And this goes back to the whole thing of, of God having to deal with the person, and not just someone getting to God through reason alone. But again, I just, I just, I'm continually baffled by the lack of acceptance of the idea that God can use apologetic, the Holy Spirit could use these arguments to bring someone to faith. That it can be, that the work of the Holy Spirit can be involved in this, just like with other forms of preaching. In Summa Theologica, we get Aquinas' five ways that really developed for us. Uh, cosmological arguments, arguments for God as the first cause of the universe, and design arguments, design arguments, or teleological arguments. Uh, they predate Aquinas, but Aquinas really brought, brought some rigor to them. And uh, Aquinas has these five ways. The first way was the argument from motion. So Thomas, uh, studying the works of Aristotle, concluded from common observation that an object that is in motion, planets or a rolling stone, is put in motion by some other object or force. From this, Aquinas believes that ultimately there must have been an unmoved mover, God, who first put things in motion. So you follow the argument this way. Nothing can move itself. If every object in motion had a mover, then the first object in motion needed a mover. Movement cannot go on for infinity. The first mover is the unmoved mover called God. Now Aquinas is starting from an a posteriori position. Don't worry about the terminology. For Aquinas, motion includes any kind of change or growth. Aquinas argues that the natural condition is for things to be at rest. Some moving is therefore unnatural and must have been put into the state by some external supernatural power. Right? So he's combining Aristotelian ideas about the cosmos and the way it works with what he knows is true from theology, and he's arguing for, this is an argument from motion. Why are things moving? Things have been moving because other things have been moving, and ultimately it gets back to God. The second way is causation of existence. This way deals with the issue of existence. Aquinas concluded that common sense observation tells us that no object creates itself. In other words, some previous object had to create it. Aquinas believed that ultimately there might be an uncaused first cause, God, who began the chain of existence for all things. So this is very much like the, the cosmological arguments you're used to hearing in the 21st century. If you want to know what those are like, go to the link that I posted above, raxonhunter.com slash lectures and go down to Contemporary Apologetics or Philosophy of Religion and go to the Cosmological Argument and listen. <clears throat> it is, this is very much like that. And so guys who use these, like William Lane Craig's dissertation was the Kalam Cosmological Argument. It's the title of it. Again, we're, see, we're still today not very uh, creative with titles. But he... Um, he credits Aquinas, and believe it or not, now this is this is going to be shocking to some of you. I think I actually already mentioned it. 
that uh, some Muslim philosophers contributed to this. But remember, all truth is God's truth. Those Muslim philosophers didn't know the one true God, but if they said something that was true, that added to a cosmological argument, that's still true what they said. Do you all think I'm a heretic, or do you understand that? You don't have to answer. <laughs> um, so that's that's the causation of existence. The third way, contingent and necessary objects. We talked about that already. The argument could be summarized. Contingent beings are caused. It's like me and you. Not every being can be contingent. There must exist a being which is necessary to cause contingent beings. This necessary being is God. This is like the first one, and actually William Lane Craig, who I keep going back to because when you talk about cosmological arguments, he's the guy these days. And um, he has actually, I mean, he hasn't really debated. I think he did this fall. But he hasn't really debated much in a couple of years. But in 2011, he actually used an argument very much like this from contingency and necessary things. And so this has survived. This is why we're talking about it. A lot of his stuff has, has survived. <clears throat> the fourth way is an argument from degrees of perfection. Um, um, yes, Michael, I, I think that's absolutely right. What do I think about uh, one God who exists in three persons, each one maintaining their own identity? Yeah, I mean, that, that's what I mean to when I say that they're three persons. They're three persons, but they share the Godhead. They share um, their their divine, the, the one God, three persons. It's exactly right. Dean says Geisler's work on this is good. Um, uh, I'm not sure if you're talking about the cosmological argument. Say something good about Geisler. There's a book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. I don't have, now there's a good title. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I encourage you to get five or six of those if you're a pastor or a counselor and keep them on your shelf. And then you can use those with people. And it's a good classical approach. But um, he's also good on the Trinity. In fact, I remember well sitting uh, here in Evansville, uh, in the Evansville area, and talking with him over dinner one night when he came for our commencement speech and sharing with him my thoughts on the Trinity. He said, look, it's, it's a triangle. It's, it's no problem. It's a triangle. <laughs> it's like a triangle. In the book, in the uh, documentary Collision, which has Calvinist apologist Doug Wilson debating with Christopher Hitchens, Hitchens says, you can't, Wilson draws a triangle and says, there, that's what it is. So it's the, it really is a way of doing it. Yeah, I strongly endorse Geisler's systematic theology, strongly. I have four volumes. Now I think you can get it in a single volume. I, I, you couldn't do that when I first got into apologetics, and so I had to buy all four volumes. I have them now, um, and I really, I really recommend those. The fourth way has to do with degrees of perfection. Thomas formulated this way for a very interesting observation about the qualities of things. For example, one may say that two marble sculptures, one is more beautiful than the other. So for these two objects, one has a next. This is referred to as degrees or gradation of quality. From this fact, Aquinas concluded that for any given quality, goodness, beauty, knowledge, there must be a perfect standard by which all such qualities are measured. Now, if you know anything about Plato, this clearly is influenced by Plato's understanding of the forms. To put it very simply, uh, Plato thought 
okay, here's a book. Somewhere, th there, this, this has a quality that we can call bookness. Booknet. And uh, it's the essence of being a book. And some books are more book-like. So somewhere in some other world, there is a form of the perfect book. It's a form of a book. And all other books are further or closer to that. It's like this. To, to really get a good idea, uh, equality. There is no such thing as a line that is perfect, completely perfectly cut down the middle equally. That, that doesn't exist. That, doesn't ex that does not exist anywhere in the world because in some atomic way, one side is bigger than the other. Yet, strangely, we all have intrinsically in our thinking an understanding of what equality is. But how do we have that if it doesn't exist somewhere in, rea in reality? Well, it exists in the world of the forms. The same with the idea of a perfect circle. There is, there is no perfect circle in reality. There are things that come close, but there's no real perfect circle. But we all know what roundness is, right? Well, how do we know that? We know that because the form. That's Plato. That's all Plato. Jeffrey Forrest has said here, allegory of the cave, right? This is where you get, this is where you get it. And I want to tell you something. You can understand why these patristic fathers, like Justin said, that the philosophers, you know, before Jesus and even after Jesus, who weren't Christians, were Christians without realizing it. They, they weren't. But the reason he would say that, one of the reasons, you read some of what Plato says, some of what Plato has Socrates saying, some of Aristotle, and you will see it dripping with truth. You will see it dripping with Christian uh, understanding. <clears throat> and Plato comes darn close. But uh, you, can't, you can't get there completely without Jesus. But Jeffrey Force mentions the allegory of the cave. You get your white belt in philosophy when you understand the world of the forms, when you understand the allegory of the cave. Um, that is, that's until you understand that you're not a white belt in philosophy. <laughs> so this is not what this class is. Like I said, this is an apologetics class. History of apologetics, not history of philosophy, but I encourage you to study that because you'll see how it, how it informs what Aquinas is doing here. <clears throat> that does not mean that, again, just like with the Muslims who contributed something to the cosmological argument, it doesn't mean that they're somehow right in their worldview in general. It just means they got something right or something they said had an element of truth in it. In fact, that's how deception always works, right? I mean, that's you get Satan quoting the element of deception. Uh, last of the ways is is an argument from intelligent design. The fifth way, uh, Thomas Aquinas speaks of. Uh, uh, he talks about how observable the observable universe and the order of nature. Right? So. Something has the earmark of design. It seems like it was designed. This is a teleological. When you hear the term teleological, it comes from the word telos, which means ends or purpose. And so a design argument, an argument that says the universe is intelligently designed or created by a creator because it's clearly designed. You can tell it's got design in it. 
that's called a teleological argument because the point is the universe is created with a purpose or an end in mind. <clears throat> so Aquinas has been incredibly influential. We got to move. We got to really move. We got to really move. Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to a five minute break. A five minute break.